Tonight is a significant event in the life of our church as we are setting aside and commissioning Doug Brubaker as an elder here at Crossway. It's significant because uh, with this new position comes a weighty responsibility of shepherding God's flock. Now the accountability before God of the spiritual health of the people here that are members at this church will be shared by Doug along with the rest of the elders. One day he will stand before our Savior, the Savior who bought the very people that he has called to shepherd, and he will have to give an account for his time and his ministry and his care of them. In light of this, I want to open the Scriptures tonight and look at a passage that I think speaks directly to his task and the larger scope of leadership over God's people. Implicitly, though, that it should shape as members your own understanding of your relationship to Doug, what you should expect from him and how you ought to respond. The culmination of our time in God's Word will then be a series of vows and promises between the elders and the congregation. Now, for a little bit of history, this is only our second commissioning service for elders and we did not have these vows the first time. You say, why the change? Well, because I didn't know they existed the first time around. Um, in fact, these uh, vows have a very long tradition, not just among Baptists, but among Presbyterians, among many uh, congregations where the appointment of a new man was accompanied with his promises of faithfulness to the task and to the Savior. And so we have looked at several different versions of uh, elder and congregational vows, and we have made these our own. So these are, though, based on others unique to Crossway. And so you'll find those vows in the uh, bullets in there, the ones that Doug will uh, make promises of, and the ones that we as members will likewise make promises toward him. As we prepare for this mutual commitment before God, let's look to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. By way of background, you'll remember that Isaiah is addressing the nation of Israel who at this time is not living as God intends, is not living up to their covenant vows that they took at the steps of Mount Sinai where they said that all the Lord declared they would do and they have not done that as a nation. So the prophet is writing to help them both see their sin and repent but also to see the judgment that will come for their failure to repent and turn back to God. Specifically, these verses have in view the worship of God's people and how that worship has become profaned because of faithless and false shepherds that are leading it. And so what we see here is really a timeless pattern for assuring all of God's people, but especially God's leaders, remain steadfast and true both in their worship of God and their leading and tending of others. So I would invite you to follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 66, beginning at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's leg. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. May God bless the reading of His inerrant and inspired word. These verses begin with this display of the greatness of God's glory in all things. Isaiah recounts the very words of the Lord Himself. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you have built for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. The, the, the supremacy of God's glory is in display here. The Lord is the one who dwells in the heavens. The earth, you imagine the, the planet, is nothing more than a footstool to Him. Similar to the vision that the prophet had on his commissioning in chapter 6, God is envisioned as one that is immense and majestic in splendor, not just in his work, but also in his very being. By his own hand, he created everything throughout the heavens and the earth. It's interesting, as creator, I was reading an article about the old movie Contact uh, that came out in the 90s. And uh, it was a fictional story about humanity's first encounter with alien beings. And it was interesting because during the production, uh, the special effects team wanted everything to be both authentic and mind-blowing. And so they went to, um, I guess, some part of NASA, whoever's in control of the Hubble telescope, and they were looking at all these uh, glorious visions of the galaxy. Uh, all of these gas giants and all of these nebulae, and they're thinking to themselves when they see these things, how do we get this in the film? How do, we, how do we get this in our movie so that everybody can both see what's out there and be amazed because most people don't see these things? Well, as those who know God, when we see pictures of those things, and I would encourage you to do a simple Google search and look at them these days, our first thought should be, how great is our God? If such glories are spread out across the vast cosmos because He made them, He put them there, how much greater is the glory of the one who did it? What does it say about His own splendor and power? Notice the Lord says He sits on a throne that speaks to His authority and to His kingship. The Lord didn't merely make the heavens and the earth. He rules over them. He is king. And furthermore, unlike any other king anywhere in the history of the world, they are but matchsticks compared to the supreme authority and dominion of God. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. When we think about just living for God, let alone ministry, that vision of God must captivate our mind and our heart if we are going to succeed. That vision of God as the one who is both splendorous, who is glorious, but is also authoritative, that is where we derive our confidence, our hope, our strength, our power to serve in this ministry. 
Uh, it was meant as a bit of a joke, but uh, there's also some truth to it. Some of you that have been here for my whole entire 13 years um, have, have noticed the, the uh, promulgation of much gray around uh, my beard and in my hair. Someone posted on Facebook a picture, and it was a man probably in his 70s, all craggled and wrinkly, and it said, what do you mean ministry's hard? I'm 43 and feel great. That's all right, though. We do it because, though it's hard, we love it, and because we have a vision of the glory of God that sustains us. So even in the difficult times, even the times that we don't, we're just thinking, why is this happening? Why is this going on? Why do I have to deal with this? It doesn't matter. The glory of God is there. It's not just at stake, depending on the decision that's made, but it sustains us as the thing that's driving us, the thing that we're living for. Of course, all this, too, this, this thought of God being exalted leads us to ask this question, how can he be confined in a temple? That's the question that God himself asks. The answer is simple. He can't. Can't be confined in a temple. Even the temple that he designed, told Israel to build, that he manifested his glorious presence in, it was useful for worship and service, but it can never contain him. There's not a box in which to keep him. The Lord says, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And God is here actually putting his finger on the problem that existed with Israel's leadership at that point. They served day and night in the temple, but in their minds, the temple was leverage against God. It was their opportunity to even control him. But God says that the temple was never going to function in that way would never limit his presence and power. And so we see the judgment, the, the, the verdict against these false shepherds in verses 3 through 4. Shepherds uh, of Israel, the Levites, were specifically tasked to teach the law to Israel, to lead them in the offering of worship through sacrifices. But over time, that ministry became corrupt and twisted. And they thought, you know, we can live however we want, and as long as we offer the right sacrifice at the right time, God will be cool with it. No problem. It was a hypocritic double standard that said, I'm going to go out and party like the devil during the week, but then I'm going to come in Sunday and punch my time card and everything's going to be cool with the guy upstairs. And the guy upstairs said, I'm not the guy upstairs. I'm your sovereign. I'm your creator. I'm the king who exists in glorious splendor over all things. And the worship that you are offering disgusts me and you're going to be judged for it. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights and their abominations. Now, if you're not super familiar with Leviticus, what he is doing is first listing the right thing that they should be offering with the right motivation and the right heart and in faith and saying because they lack faith, because they lack any sense of godliness or concern for me, it's disgusting and filthy like a, like a false offering in front of me. So were they to offer an ox? Yes, but what does he say? When you offer the ox, it's no better than if you went out and you killed a man. Should they sacrifice the lamb? Absolutely. He says, but when you do it, it's like you're going out and you're breaking a dog's neck. What were the, the offerings of God meant to be? Blameless, spotless, no blemishes, any broken bone, let alone a breaking of the neck for by means of killing it. 
That's not what God had in mind. All of this is gruesome language, offensive to any godly Jew meant to highlight the severity of their sin. But notice he keeps going. A memorial offering of frankincense, when you offer it, it's like you're bowing down and blessing an idol. When, when you go to give the grain offering, it's like you're offering up pig's blood. Pig, the most unclean animal in all of Judaism. And he says, you might as well be offering that because when your heart is not right with me, then your ministry to me, your service to me, even in going to the motions and doing the right things, disgusts me. That's what he's saying against these men. He's saying that their service is an abomination. Notice the underlying reason. He says, I also will choose harsh judgment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. God says he's going to bring judgment on these false shepherds because they wanted to do what they wanted to do rather than what God wanted. God is speaking to them. He is calling out to them. They don't listen. He's asking them to come, come, come to me. They don't show up. They are ignoring God rather than following him or serving in a way that brings him glory and honor. It's staggering thought, but the reality is there are probably pastors today doing the exact same thing. And that's why, Doug, we have to never forget that the pattern for pastoral ministry, for shepherding God's people, is not just found in God's word, but it's rooted in God himself and the way that he cares and shepherds his own flock. We must never give in to the temptation to apply the wisdom of mankind that stands in direct contrast to what God's wisdom and God's example is in seeking to pastor the church. When God speaks, either in cutting correction or in gracious encouragement, we must listen and obey. Think about Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says the way he went about doing apostolic ministry, the example that he left behind for others to follow, was one that said, I have a clear conscience before everybody. In fact, I will hold myself up and let anyone bring charge because nothing will stick. I did not do anything underhanded, deceitful. There was no cunning. There was no tampering with God's word. He spoke, we listened, and obeyed. We've seen this glorious God in this opening verse. We've seen the judgment that God is going to bring because the wicked leaders, the false shepherds, the Levites in Israel this day did not rightly lead and serve the people. The question is, how do we avoid that same fate? How do we avoid falling into that trap? How do we even as leaders make sure that that's not us? That when God looks upon us, it is not at judgment, but is upon with favor and blessing. Well, Paul, or excuse me, rather, Isaiah tells us. Listen again to verse 1 and now all of verse 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things 
my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. On more than one occasion, I found myself in a crowd of people, whether at an amusement park or somewhere else, and I've been looking for one person, usually my wife. And I'm going through and thinking, what does she have on? What is she wearing today? I know her face and her hair. I know her glasses. And so there could be a sea of humanity in front of me, but my eyes are locked in. I am looking for that very specific person until I find her, and I am happy that I did. And we get to either go on our day or leave or whatever it is we're doing. God says that in the midst of the sea of humanity, there is a type of person that he's looking for. Though he is exalted in the heavens. Think about this. Earth is his mere footstool. But in the midst of his sovereign glory, there is a person that says, whoa, look at that over there. Look at that amazing thing. What is it? It's the person who was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. That's the kind of person that draws the gaze of an all-glorious God. Therefore, Doug, be humble. Be humble. 1 Peter 5, the apostle lays out instructions for the elders He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." He goes on to address the young men of the congregation. And he says, you know what you ought to do? You ought to submit to your elders. And then he speaks to both groups, the one leading, the one submitting. And he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why does humility draw the gaze of God? Why is humility such a key characteristic that would get God's attention. I think it's because when he sees someone who is genuinely humble, he sees the image, the reflection of his own son. Do you remember Mark chapter 10? Jesus told his disciples, whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says that true greatness of the kingdom of God is displayed in humble service to others. And then he says, I'm setting the pattern for that. I am humbling myself by stepping off that heavenly throne room, taking on flesh to the point that I will die in the place of sinners who do not deserve my blood. That's the humility that Christ displays that sets the pattern for the humility for all Christian living. And I think also the humility that is required for pastoral service. God also says the one who draws his gaze is the one who is contrite in spirit. Just as Jesus can say, blessed are the poor in spirit, here the Father says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. Contrition speaks to one who is sorrowful over their sins. Though in a position of leadership, you are first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ. That means you are seeking to cultivate that abiding relationship with Him so that your fellowship might be with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That means in part pursuing godliness 
by taking account of your own sin and dealing with it before God. Martin Luther famously said that all of life is a life of repentance. He didn't mean getting saved over and over and over again, but what he did mean was not taking sin lightly. Acknowledging that we are frail and weak and we need God and going to him, confessing our failures, confessing our sin and our rebellion and asking him to forgive us and to restore us into fellowship with himself. How many people have we seen in recent days who though have amazing gifts of leadership are blind to their own sin and the results have been devastating for the church. Rather than serve with humility and hatred of sin, they ignore it or they delight in it. Such a person God despises, he says, but the one he delights in, the one that draws his gaze is the person who deals with their sin and is contrite about it. They are sad and sorrowful over their sin. Finally, to attract God's gaze, one must tremble at his word. This is the one to whom I will look, he who was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What does it mean to tremble at God's word? If nothing else, I think it means that we take it seriously. We treat it as the weighty thing that it is. We do not ignore it. We do not take it for granted. We treasure it. We tremble before it, holding in our hands this This leather-bound work of pages is the actual word of the living God. Where the scripture speaks, God speaks. That's why we must never take it lightly. We must never take it for granted. Doug, in particular, if you are to be able to fulfill the commands given in 2 Timothy, you must tremble at his word. Paul told his, his young pastor, Friend Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. How are we to do that if we ourselves are not trembling at the word? How are we to proclaim the word in all circumstances, for all kinds of reasons, if we ourselves have not first been gripped by the word, if we have not taken it seriously in our own life, whether he is speaking into our life with cutting correction or with graceful encouragement? We are tremble before God's word. We are to acknowledge that he is God and we are not. When he speaks, we ought to listen. Jeremiah Burroughs once wrote, all the beautiful objects in the world are not so lovely in the eye of God as a heart that trembles at his word. May that be true of you as well for the glory of Christ in these coming days. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the prophet Isaiah, and for the way in which so many years ago you spoke into the life of Israel offering correction. But God, even in the midst of that, you offered encouragement to us today as we clearly see how we ought to draw your gaze. And Father, we pray especially for Doug. We pray for him that he would be one who desires to live under your gaze, to find your blessing and grace to be normal parts of his life. Father, help him to be one who not only sees who you are, who understands who you are, who understands the horror of hypocrisy in 
those that would lead the people of God. But the Father, he would strive to be humble and contrite in spirit and trembling at your word. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn into your worship guide where you'll find our vows of service and commitment. And Doug, I'm going to ask uh, these questions and in the form of uh, a promise, I'll ask you to, to respond and affirm these things before the church. As a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you believe the historic scriptures to be the inerrant, inspired word of God, the only infallible authority on Christian faith and practice? Yes, I believe. Do you wholeheartedly affirm the historic Christian faith, the gospel of Christ, His church and mission as taught by the elders of this church and has lived out in the practice of this community? And if at any time you come to disagree with any of the fundamentals of the gospel, the church, or God's mission, as your fellow elders hold firm through the scriptures, will you take initiative to make known your change in views to your fellow elders? Yes. Do you affirm Crossway's constitution, her government, and church discipline practices thoughtfully drawn from the general principles found in the Bible? Do you promise a heart of peace and unity toward your fellow elders and your church family, which would lead you to love, serve, and submit to them in the Lord? Do you affirm that you have been led as best you know of your own heart to desire the work of an elder in this church by your love of God and a sincere desire to advance Christ's glory in and through this church? Do you promise to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as a Christian man and elder in this church, as an individual and in community, privately and publicly, and to strive by the grace of God to adorn the gospel with a godly life before God's church in a watching world? I do promise. Do you now willingly take leadership in this church in response to God's call in your life and your own desire? Do you promise to faithfully discharge the duties of a pastor in this community to the best of your ability and even beyond by the grace of God in your life? And now, Crossway members, I would invite you to uh, find the member vows there in the bulletin and to affirm with uh, the bolded answer at the end of each question. Do you, members of Crossway, profess your readiness to receive this man as a gift of Christ to his church as he answers the call to be your pastor? Do you promise to receive the word of truth from this man Submission uh, with, with uh, the truth from this man with submission and love following him as he follows Christ and receive his encouragement and admonishment as he shepherds you in your Christian faith. Do you promise to encourage this man and joyfully take part in all his work as he helps lead this church along with his fellow elders? Do you promise to support him with acts of service and generosity with your time and talents and with your finances as scripture calls you to do so? to supply him in his needs for the sake of his work, for the gospel on your behalf and on behalf of your city and on behalf of the nations. Amen. Well, upon your affirmation of God's call and upon the affirmation of this congregation, I'll invite you to come forward and to kneel before the congregation. Pastor Richard and I will take time to pray for you and for God's work. And then in a few minutes, we will invite the congregation uh, to stand and to come alongside as well.